0: I told you, I told you last week, James is going to sting, (laughs) didn't I? He doesn't hold anything back, especially when he starts talking about our money. In fact, some have described James as the very first Christian sermon to significantly address the issues of money and our faith. Of course, we know Jesus spoke a lot about money, but here's the first example of the church actually trying to wrestle with it for themselves. Or maybe I should say the church not wrestling with it nearly enough. That seems to be James's opinion. He's seen some rather un-Jesus-like things going on in the churches around him when it comes to our relationship to wealth and poverty. And so he climbs up on his soapbox Or actually, maybe I should say he gets out his papyrus and pen, and he lets us have it. And it sure sounds pretty judgmental, doesn't it? I mean, I think probably like the us, the church in his day, they were trying. They cared about the poor, just like We do. They always have. We always have. But when it comes to all this money stuff, there is a real tension that we Christians feel an awful lot of the time, isn't there? It's this tension that we have from living in two different realities at the very same time, two different worlds almost. And so we've got one foot in the realm of the things that we can touch and see and hear. It's the realm of our mortgage payments and our car payments and the realm of college tuition and needing to set some aside for a rainy day and then we have another foot in the realm that's a whole lot less concrete isn't it and a realm that we know and trust and faith one where our money doesn't define us whether we're rich or poor and one where generosity is the obvious choice it's the realm of where Jesus says we lose our life if we try to cling to it, but we will find our life if we'll let go of it. You and I, we know these two realms, right? One realm and its messages and its goals, we live in Monday through Saturday, week after week. And then there's this other realm that we remember and we try to hear again as we gather on Sundays. And the thing is, we live in Both. Both are a real part of our lives and we need to acknowledge that. And both of these realms ask different things of us, don't they? And so often they have a way of competing and rubbing up against each other. And so there's this tension that we feel, attention that we live with, attention of which of these are primary for us and which of them are secondary, attention of how much of my life am I going to live into this and how much of my life am I going to invest in this, attention of which of these two realms will I ultimately pledge allegiance to. I mean, if we're really honest with ourselves then we have to admit, I think, that our loyalty to each of these two realms keeps shifting back and forth all the time. It's sort of in this constant flux for us. You lean into one, but then you lean back out, and it shifts a bit, and then you start leaning into another, and then you start leaning back, and then you're doing the hokey pokey, and you get all turned about. It's a bit dizzying, isn't it? this tension we have between our money and our faith. And I think, you know, that tension that we have, it gets even harder for us when we are reminded that we are Christians living in the wealthiest nation, really, in human history. (laughs) And unlike the Christians that James was writing to, unlike the early church, we are living in a nation where we at least have some say in what our nation does or does not do. With money. Unlike the early church living under Roman rule, we, the people, are the government. We, the people, including all of us, but not just us, but including us who follow Jesus, we, the people, at least have some influence over what our nation does and doesn't do to set the rules of the economic game, the rules that can help or can hurt the poor both the poor among us here in our land, but even the poor in our global community, which is why I can't help but think that we, you and I, are the rich that James is writing to. And I, I don't want to admit that to myself, but I, I can't help but avoid it either. In a world of so much need and poverty and hunger, we are the rich, and when we face that, it often has a way of adding up to a whole lot of guilt and not a lot of answers for us, doesn't it? And feeling pretty frustrated and flustered in this hokey pokey that we keep getting all turned about in. Now, I think there's a great temptation for us when we feel all of that tension that we're struggling with. There's a temptation for us to try to resolve that tension in some pretty simple ways because we want to do something, right? And and one of those ways is to actually spiritualize our response to all this. We didn't read this part, but if we kept going in chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, James actually calls the church out on that exact tendency. He says, if your brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food and one of you says, Go in peace, keep warm, and eat your fill. It would have been like a prayer or a blessing. Go in peace. And yet you do not supply their bodily needs. What good is that? So faith by itself, if it has not works, is dead, James says. It's James' way, I think, of saying praying by itself, offering our blessings and encouragement and well wishes to the poor isn't going to cut it and we do that sometimes don't we I know I do I let my conscience off the hook with a few prayers but don't actually do something that changes the situation of the poor I mean yeah prayers and blessings they are important but alone they're not quite enough Alone, sometimes they become more about making me feel good than changing the actual situation for the poor. And James says to me, that's dead faith. And yeah, that kind of stings. And unfortunately, James doesn't stop there because that's not the only sort of superficial way that we try to resolve this deep tension we feel in our desire to be generous and yet our struggle to know how. Sometimes I think we do that by purchasing some canned food goods just a few times a year to support our local food pantry, and that makes us feel a little bit better. At least we're doing something, right? It helps me sleep at night. And... Yes, just like prayers and blessings, that's good to do. We need to do that. Please hear me. We do need to be praying for the poor and blessing the poor with our words, and we do need to be giving to food pantries and to charities, but alone, it often doesn't actually change the situation for the poor. And so James doesn't let us off the hook here either. We heard just a moment ago in chapter 5, Starting in verse 4, where James writes, Listen, the wages of the laborers who mow your fields, they cry out. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You notice he's not saying the food pantries are crying out because they need your donations. No, the wages of the laborers who mow your fields and harvest your crops are crying out. The wages of the laborers, he writes are crying out and their cries have reached the ears of God. It's actually really reminiscent of Exodus chapter 3 when the Hebrew people, the children of Abraham, they're slaving away in Egypt, building what was at that time the greatest economic and military power the world had ever seen, slaving away in Egypt, building all of that wealth. The cries of the Hebrew people... Their cries reach the ears of God. And so in Exodus chapter 3, verse 7, God says to Moses, when Moses is at the burning bush, you remember that story, God says, I have heard their cries on account of their taskmaster. James, he knows his Jewish audience. They know that story backwards and forwards. So when he says that, he is hinting. He's hinting that we who are rich have become the taskmasters. The wages of the laborers are crying out and they have reached the ears of God. And here's the thing. Here's the thing that's so dang hard. It's not just true of the laborers back in the first century. It's still true of the poor who labor today. In that same book that Ellie was reading from just a moment ago, the author points out to some studies that show that in our nation today, work alone is not a way out of poverty. Work for a growing segment of the country, the authors write, does not even pay enough to keep one's head above water. Then they point out that even education alone, education can make a huge difference, but it doesn't always solve the problems either. Here in the U.S., there are 3.3 million college graduates who not only live in what you and I would consider poverty, but what the federal government calls poverty, which is quite deep poverty. 3.3 million college graduates. Even today... The wages of laborers sometimes are keeping people poor. And James says the wages of the laborers are crying out, and those cries have reached the Lord of the host, the wages of those people who are picking your crops, James writes. Maybe the wages of those workers who are watching your children at daycare. Maybe the wages of those who are washing your car and cleaning your office buildings. The wages of those who are sewing together the clothing that we wear and who are assembling those expensive phones we carry. The wages of the laborers are crying out and their cries have reached the ears of God. And then James he goes on to say that you have lived on the earth in luxury and pleasure. But guess what? You have been fattening your hearts for the slaughter, like cows being fattened up for the slaughter. Ouch. I tried to tell you this would be a really good time to skip church. James stings. Maybe Martin Luther was onto something when he said we should rip James out of the Bible. <laughs> the only thing is, these kinds of words aren't just in James. Jim Wallace tells a story about when he was back as a master's student in seminary. He got together with some of his other seminary friends, and together they decided to do something that I would actually not like to do. I'd rather not do. He and his friends in seminary, they decided to find every verse in the Bible that addressed the poor and social justice for the poor. And guess what? They found thousands. One out of every ten verses in three of the Gospels. In the Gospel of Luke, it was one out of every seven verses. Then they started thinking about the churches that they had grown up in and trying to remember if they had ever even heard a sermon on the poor in particular, and they couldn't remember a single sermon. And so they decided to see what kind of Christianity that actually left them with, a Christianity that ignores all those portions of the Bible. And so one of his friends grabbed an old Bible and just started cutting out every little passage that dealt with the poor. And guess what? It wasn't just James. And it wasn't just Jesus either. In fact, huge portions of the Psalms were gone. Most of the prophets were gone. In fact, that old Bible ended up so full of holes, it couldn't hardly hold together. I guess that's what our faith is when it ignores the lived reality of the poor. It becomes a Christianity so full of holes, we can't hardly hold it together. Which means ripping James out isn't really going to help us. In fact, I, I started to wonder this week if perhaps James, as painful as he is, is actually a gift to us as we shift back and forth between these two realms that we struggle to live in, the realm of our own practical concerns and and the spiritual realm that tends to turn some of those things on its head. Maybe James is a gift as we're trying to stay centered and as we get kind of turned around along the way because James keeps going to push us back into the dance of generosity. A generosity that... Yes, cares enough to pray and bless the poor. And a generosity that, yes, asks us to donate and to help feed the poor, but a generosity that doesn't stop there either. James keeps turning us around to face the ongoing lived reality of the poor until our generation or generosity is willing to change the situation of the poor willing to change the economic rules of the game that the poor keep finding themselves trapped in. Because James knows and wants to remind us that the church, the church, just like Moses at the burning bush, the church has been given a terribly hard and yet holy calling just like Moses was, a calling to face down every Pharaoh and demand that the way things have been gets all shaken about. Amen.